Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, it's me again. Okay, so a lot has happened in the last week and a half or so, and I'm here to bring you up to speed. This will probably take a little while, so at least I'm warning you beforehand. If you love the sound of my voice and want to know what's what in the world of WDF and arguably Zach Twomley too, stay tuned. Otherwise, skip ahead about five minutes and don't be mean about it, alrighty? So let's begin. Above all, you should know that I have been overwhelmed really by the support from faithful history friends across the board and it seems as though the move to patreon was the best thing well we ever did really to this i'd like to add if you're sick of me yapping about patreon already well there is a solution to such woes by becoming a diplomat you will have access to the recently launched members extra feed which is free from ads be fit requests for you to love me on patreon that kind of thing basically anything you find annoying about me or the podcast The extra feed doesn't have it, which is of course nice. It does launch, or rather did launch, on the 6th of March too, which means it's live by the time you're listening to this all being well. The extra feed also enjoys the distinction of being one week ahead of the regular feed, so no spoilers please, but this also means that whenever you decide to join up, you'll instantly have another episode to listen to as you catch up with the rest of the elite diplomats living the high life in Patreon land, or whatever it's called. And that is of course very nice too. What is also even nicer is the buckets of merchandise I've been ordering over the last week or so, with everything from pens, keyrings, badges, magnets, mugs, new t-shirts, hoodies, the bumper stickers, yup, and more arriving at my door. It's really a very exciting time to be a history friend, and I can't tell you how excited I am to drink from an exclusive Bismarck mug and think to myself, this literally all came from me. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but imagine the crime of never having the opportunity to drink from a mug that has Bismarck's face on it, because a certain college student five years ago had a mad idea to ruin his social life. Now you can! At the moment, I'm learning all about postal dimensions, postal tax, and all that lovely stuff, and I'm trying to set up a kind of shop in the official website where you can just buy the stuff if you want. There is an added caveat to that, though, because... You see, this thing costs a bit to make, and postage is expensive from this tiny island of mine. Patrons will have it very good, and other history friends who don't want to be a patron, I understand that, but they want a mug, I'm afraid you'll have to shell out that much extra. Not a super amount extra, but yeah, you'll have to put in the investment that I put in in order to get them. I'm sorry that that seems a bit unfair, but it really did cost me a good amount of investment to set all this up, 
And with the wedding and our life approaching, in retrospect, maybe this was not the right time to do all this, but I really can't afford to run on a loss. So, if you're not the kind of person to shell out for a mug, I would say not to worry. Head on over to Patreon and just see what we can do for you. And I really do want to help you out. I wish I didn't have to throw all this information at you guys. I wish I could just give away mugs for free. But this episode is an awesome one anyway, so I hope you'll forgive me for the rambling. I probably wouldn't have to do this rambling at the start of the podcast episode if my media platforms actually worked to get my word across. Let's just say Facebook advertising leaves a whole lot to be desired. Speaking of media, though, we're on Twitter. That's that's how bad it got, guys. When Diplomacy Fails is on Twitter, and that's how you know I have literally zero principles. Hell has in fact frozen over. But I do it literally because I was told it was time I did by, like, a guy who was older than me and very good at marketing. Hey, Mike, how you doing? And he said it can work wonders for self-promotion, as did pretty much everyone else that I've been ignoring for the past five years. Sure enough, when I did join, it turned out I was literally the only podcaster not on Twitter. And I think that says a lot, really. I'm kind of like Johan DeWitt in that way. I resisted to the end until those orangist traitors forced me to make a Twitter account against my will. That's not at all true, but if you were to follow me at WDF Podcast, that would be great. And I'm afraid we've basically killed Be Fit with all this new stuff, but such is the life of an expanding podcaster. Speaking of expansion, and I promise I'm nearly finished here, you may have learned something about our Patreon goals. You see, when we reach the $500 mark, I'll launch a mini-series on Polish history in either the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, or 20th century. I set up a poll, currently the 18th century is winning, because I put a poll up there, as in, you know, a poll for a vote. A poll to vote on what era of the polls you want me to cover. Right, Uh, so once we get to 500, that mini-series will happen. If you don't want it, that's fine, but it will run parallel to our normal programming, so you won't notice any difference in our narrative that we normally follow. You should also know that... When we get to $2,500 a month, which, hey, wouldn't that be amazing, I'll launch a totally separate podcast on the history of Prussia. I'm kind of liking the name Ironcast for this, but since another podcast of the same name already exists for this, I have to say a history of Prussia straight after, which is kind of difficult. I suppose I could temper the lawsuits by saying welcome to the Ironcast, but hmm, I'll mull it over. Any suggestions? Send them over. Anyway, if you want these projects to happen, head on over to the Patreon. You know the deal, guys. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or WDFpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner. If you just search Patreon and when diplomacy fails, I'm sure something will come up. Anyway, go for it. Start your exciting journey today. And if you do become a diplomat, you won't have to hear these monologues every week. Saying that, though, I promise I'll cut them down a lot as we go on. Once I master what it is I have to say and how to communicate new news to you guys, because I think it's only right that you were all up to date and knew what was going on. If you still hate me for doing this, Patreon, or maybe even other reasons I'm not quite aware of, remember I do have a very special present for you guys for our fifth birthday, so you have to be nice to me, at least until then or else. If you're a diplomat and you're lost and looking for the extra members feed right now, then please contact me and I'll help you out. I hope you're okay. All my patrons listening here... Stick around till the end to hear your shout-out as promised, since you earned it. There are some challenging names in there, so even if you aren't a patron, stick around to hear me butcher those, since that's always fun. 
I think that kind of comes with the territory, but hey, you love me for it, so it's all right. I'll always read these new patrons out at the end of every show, be it in the extra feed or the normal feed, because why would the extra people listen to the normal feed when they've moved way beyond us plebs? In any case, thanks so much for listening and putting up with me here, guys. This is the longest Patreon spiel we'll ever have to do unless something ungodly happens, so thanks for bearing with it and, of course, me. You're all awesome, and I'm sure you will all massively enjoy this episode. How long are we? Oh, good grief, it's nearly eight minutes. Okay, I'm really, really sorry. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 12. With the Dutch on the rocks, facing down their darkest hours, and with their Anglo-French enemies tearing up all before them as they reached closer to the beating heart of the Republic, it seemed as though nothing could resist the ambition or power of the two cousins. The Dutch, it seemed, were to be a mere footnote to history, a tragic case of a Republic overstepping its place in the world. Few statesmen remained in the Republic to redeem this grim picture. How, one could reasonably ask, was a state the size of the Netherlands, meant to resist the forces of the strongest land power arguably in the world. Johan de Witt and a few of his allies believed they had the answer. It wouldn't be pretty, it wouldn't be easy, and in many places it wouldn't be popular, but he was determined to prevent the downfall of his country of birth, either to the external threats to its independence, or the divisions which seemed to threaten it from within. It was a Herculean task that the Grand Pensionary had before him, but just like in 1654 and 1665, he faced it with a nerve, with a tenacity and perhaps a whiff of resignation that was matched only by his ultimate domestic rival in the Republic, the Prince of Orange. So let's get to it, as I take you to mid-June 1672 with the Dutch Republic in the throes of the most trying period in its history, the Rampyar. The declaration of war against the States General of the United Provinces has not been at all well received by the common people here. They would much rather see the weapons of this kingdom turned against France. The words of an anonymous London correspondent for the Dutch pamphlet, The Sincere Harlem Current, the 15th of April, 1672. The great judgment upon his enemy, the most satisfying revenge, the terrible wrath of the two cousins' war, finally seemed to have come to pass. Charles II must have looked at the situation unfolding in the Netherlands with a mixture of glee 
and roaring ambition. By the end of June 1672, after barely three months' worth of campaigning, the Dutch Republic of old seemed to be buckling at record speed under the multiple invasions, domestic squabbles and sheer panic and confusion which reigned across the state. It seemed only logical that in this position, with its best strategic interests either bypassed, seized or coming under direct attack, that the Dutch would sue for peace, and thus would follow the next phase of the Anglo-French plan, dividing the spoils. It was just as well William of Orange was on hand, and it was just as well that the Regent Party continued to be perceived by the common people as the faction most responsible for the calamities which had befallen their country. Little thought was given to the efforts of Johann de Witt, who worked tirelessly to keep it all together, or his brother Cornelius, who had ventured out amongst the outnumbered Dutch fleet, led by Admiral de Ruyter, or the sacrifices they had all made for their country. Even less thought was given by the commonality of the Netherlands towards the idea that they were as much to blame for running about like panicked amateurs, or fanning petty provincial jealousies, or opposing any efforts to deal with the invading French and Germans as a combined force. Efforts to open the sluices and let the seawater in were constantly opposed, and within Holland only Amsterdam continued to hold firm against the cacophony of hysteria which seemed to have gradually built during the spring. So determined were the commonality to both oppose the enemy but bear no responsibility for the disasters themselves, that a cruel result emerged from the chaos which greatly benefited Charles's cause. Only the Orange Party should control the Republic, the people cried. Only William could lead them and only clemency on the part of England could save them from certain slavery to France. All this led conveniently to Charles's planned development of two members of his cabal, Buckingham and Arlington, who would soon depart for the Netherlands. As the Dutch house seemed to burn down, Charles's gambling was apparently vindicated. For all his optimism and rampant enthusiasm for sticking it to the Dutch, though, one wonders if, in the back of his mind, he worried for what might befall his regime, or reign, should the war continue. Driven though Charles had been towards leading his nation to war with the Dutch for the second time in seven years, he was mindful of the fact that the country as a whole were not on side with these plans. Furthermore, his entire means of getting his kingdom ready for the affair had consisted of a PR campaign based on lies and deceit, not merely to the public, but to Parliament as well. Perhaps most infamously, the always stingy Parliament had been persuaded to grant large subsidies in April 1671 for the purpose, Charles claimed, of increasing the strength of the fleet and aiding its ability to project its power within the Triple Alliance. The Triple Alliance was and had been popular in England. Such factors gel with the reputed increase in anti-French sentiment since the end of the last Anglo-Dutch War, which was caused itself by two major factors. The first reason for anti-French sentiments were sourced from the French intervention within that previous Anglo-Dutch War, an event which less aware Englishmen like to point as the major cause of Britain's vulnerability and resulting loss during that conflict. The intervention of France, even while it fulfilled its terms of the defence pact with the Dutch, and not to a far enough extent, the Dutch would add, was presented as a great betrayal of Bourbon against Stuart, and indeed Charles had lulled himself somewhat unreasonably into a false sense of security during 1666 that France would not intervene owing to the close family ties of the two houses, but he had of course been disappointed as we saw. Disingenuous as Louis' acts on behalf of the Dutch had been, and 
prompted as they had been mainly by the fears that the Bishop of Munster was about to seize the Dutch Republic for himself, the act nonetheless persuaded many in London that France could not be trusted. The second reason for increased anti-French feeling was the blatant and simultaneous increase in anti-Catholic feeling, fears and propaganda since the 1660s. Despite the express intention of Charles to reduce these sentiments, the suspicion and fear of that denomination was on the rise, and Popery, as it was popularly known, soon became the bugbear of English imaginations, determined as it was to overtake their reformed sensibilities and cast their glorious religion back to the Dark Ages. Such fears were hardly aided by Charles's brother James's rumoured conversion by 1670, and as we have seen in the terms of the Treaty of Dover, the English would have been horrified had they discovered that Charles, however sincere he may have been, and we covered that debate before, committed himself to convert to Catholicism as well. Although this clause wouldn't last 1670's curious redefinition of the two allies' terms, thanks in most part to the clueless Buckingham, the remnants of it would have sufficiently spooked the British to no end. In spring 1672, before the war erupted that is, Charles accepted the need to get his countrymen on side with what was about to come, and planned a way to change the growing anti-French sentiment back into those of the anti-Dutch variety. To do so, he would have to construct an incident which would insult the very fibre of an Englishman's being, and in searching for such an insult, he settled on England's relationship with the sea. More specifically, the idea that England claimed mastery over the seas, and could thus claim the salutes from other ships as a result of this mastery. It was a strange practice, and in many ways whiffs of national honour, or at the very least a specifically English take on that concept. Popularly upheld views on the kingdom's supremacy over the seas meant that any incident in which the enemy did not give to England what this status demanded would represent an insult. So it was that Charles sought to make a mountain out of a molehill when in mid-March 1672, less than a fortnight before actually attacking the Dutch and sparking off the war, the English yacht, Merlin, was ordered to provoke a response from a Dutch commercial fleet as it approached the Channel. First, the yacht was to signal for the Dutch salute, a practice in which the opposite number essentially displayed their submission to your superior position, in both rhetoric and fact by hoisting special flags on the mast and signalling their submission. When the Dutch failed to do this, the Merlin fired what would later be described as a warning shot, directly at one of the most heavily laden Dutch vessels. Seeing their most valuable possessions under threat, the incredulous Dutch annihilated the Merlin, and once it limped home, Charles believed he had the tinder he needed to launch the war. In Peter Gale's words, Charles's endeavour to arouse his people against the old rival over the flag issue had not been unsuccessful, but his position was weak all the same. That it was weak had much to do with Charles's untimely decision to push through the most sensitive of all legislation, that of the religious kind, right at the point when, as we saw, Catholic suspicion was at an all-time high. The Declaration of Indulgences, as it was called, granted Catholics the right to worship in private and apply for a license to worship in public. It removed old restrictions and penal laws on Catholic citizens and seemed to encourage dissenters and Catholics alike out of the woodwork and back into society. I shouldn't need to tell you that such an act of tolerance was both an inherently good thing and indicative of Charles's character, despite what we have come to learn about his more unsavoury side. 
The problem was, not only did it come just at the point when Catholic prejudices were soaring, it was also announced on the 15th of March 1672, which meant the Parliament had to deal with this controversial piece of legislation less than two weeks before the war with the Dutch broke out, and his kingdom was therefore as divided as it could possibly be when that occurred. This latter point would have been true, in other words, the Parliament would have debated it, except that Charles didn't even consult Parliament when he passed the measure, he simply announced it within the confines of the Declaration when his office issued it to the country. With Parliament bypassed in favour of a quick solution, worse was yet to come for the distraught English when they read deeper into the document, wherein Charles had declared his intention to make use of that supreme power in ecclesiastical matters which is not only inherent within us, kings, but hath been declared and recognised so by several statutes and acts of Parliament. In other words, he was merely operating within the confines of his position as the head of the realm and the religion. Yet, as Antonia Fraser in her biography of Charles II noted, not everyone agreed on this interpretation, either of how Britain's constitution worked or where Charles's powers within it lay. To cut past the nitty-gritty details that we don't really want to bother ourselves with, this declaration in the short term had the effect of drawing out the different strands of English opinion. The judges opposed it because they claimed Charles didn't have the legal power to pass it, some MPs were furious because they had been blatantly overlooked, while some of Charles's inner circle believed that the ruling was a step in the right direction. What it really did though was rouse divisions and passions at the worst possible moment, and draw attention away from the Merlin incident at home, the result being that the British quickly forgot about why they were meant to be fighting the Dutch, and they saw the circumstances of the war, with the Catholic-French partner, the suspiciously shiny navy and the undercurrent of shadiness, as ill omens, which in fact made many wish for peace. The situation was captured by the historian C. Orr Boxer in his article, Some Second Thoughts on the Third Anglo-Dutch War, wherein he wrote, with the deliberately staged incident of the royal yacht Merlin, which had orders to make the whole Dutch fleet strike their flags to her, and with Charles II's overblown complaints about allegedly insulting Dutch pictures, medals and pamphlets, it became increasingly obvious that, as Lord Arlington told the Foreign Affairs Committee, our business is to break with them, the Dutch, and yet to lay the breach at their door. But probably the great majority of people in England, and certainly a great majority of the non-conformists, hoped up until the last moment that another Anglo-Dutch war could somehow be avoided. Many people in the United Provinces hoped the same thing, and this hope amounted to a firm conviction with most of the Orangists. They argued that Charles could be placated by restoring his young nephew, the third William, to all the honours and dignities which his ancestors had held as stadtholders of several provinces and as commander-in-chief of them all. These hopes and expectations on both sides of the North Sea were soon disappointed, but they were widely shared and they were only finally shattered by the traumatic events of the spring and summer of 1672. Even at this point, the unmistakably English historical quality of fearing, loathing and siding against France was making itself felt. It remained to be seen if these feelings could be overcome by the sheer weight either of England's successes and the resulting, hopefully popular, gains from the conflict, or by the French destruction of the Dutch state itself. Were the victory to come quickly, Charles would be able to present the affair as justification for his policy course, to MPs as much as to the public, vindication, as Charles almost certainly knew, 
could only be found in victory. It is unlikely that DeWitt cared one fig for the state of public opinion in England, and if he did it was only in so far as he recognised that Dutch public opinion continued to insist that London would save the Republic if affairs became too grim to resist from being a French vassal state. With the upturn in anti-French sentiment in both states, this meant that any English overtures would reinforce this belief, and it would thus make De Witt's and his party's original opposition to William of Orange's promotion seem like virtual treason. This lie that, by promoting William of Orange to the office of Stadtholder and basically ingratiating themselves towards Charles, that they could somehow save the independence of their republic, would become a common one and it would take various forms, as we'll soon see. Through DeWitt and his allies' resistance to these promotions, the relenting after much resistance to William becoming Captain General, and the perpetual edict which actually banned the position of Stadtholder, the Dutch Regent Party were presented by the Orangists and their other enemies as a faction that deliberately jeopardised Dutch security, because they deprived the country of the friendship with England that would have been enjoyed if only they had allowed the king's nephew to assume his rightful offices sooner. This belief... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Based entirely on false pretenses, by the way, and the one which cropped up in the previous Anglo-Dutch war, was of course cultivated and encouraged by Charles and his agents, who sought in the years since the Anglo-Dutch war to sow division like weeds amongst Dutch society. Charles and his agents, it has to be said, were so successful in this strategy that a level of anger remained within segments of the Dutch populace over the victories that the Dutch actually enjoyed against England in the previous war. This explains the curious and frightful scene that we come across where outraged Dutch citizens stormed the town hall of Cornelius de Witt's hometown and tore the painting off the wall which depicted that admiral's role in the incredible victory in the Medway against British vessels. Charles, the sneaky devil that he was, had referred to this painting and other memorabilia which referenced the previous war in exalted terms, and thus when Dutch citizens vandalised the painting, cutting Cornelius de Witt's head out of it, and then burning it, they did so in the mistaken belief that such acts of wanton arrogance and pomp 
had alienated their potential English ally and doomed the Dutch Republic to suffer. Instead of focusing on the bettering of an Anglo-Dutch partnership, Johann de Witt and his corrupt friends had taken bribes from Paris, which meant that the state was wide open when the French and their allies arrived. With England insulted and on hand also to give the Dutch their comeuppance, the self-inflicted doom of the Regent Party was laid bare for all to see. Of course, Johann de Witt had fought tooth and nail against these ridiculous ideas, just as he continued to fight against the state of turmoil which existed in the Republic. As the refugees poured into Holland, laden down with all they could carry, it cast a sorry shadow over what had once been a deep-seated Dutch military pride. The Orangists, no doubt, would attempt to blame the regions for this state of affairs too, but as we saw in episodes past, the sheer divisions of the Dutch state system and the arguments over issues like William's position in the state had proved to be fatal distractions to the more important tasks of improving the defences and preparing the army. The result of this neglect was that the overjoyed Orangists bore witness to William III as their Captain General, but he barely had the remnants of an army to call his own, and the defensive lines which had so often saved the Republic had mostly been overcome before he was even in a position to resist. Into these desperate circumstances, DeWitt informed an ally that, I see our greatest misfortune not in the power or prowess of the enemy, but in general insurrection, the disobedience and reluctance of the citizens and peasants, by which the strength of authority is sapped and action everywhere held up. Similarly did the deputies of the States of Holland argue before a thoroughly spooked and demoralised States General on the 21st of June that the military position was not nearly as grave as the lack of courage. Indeed, perhaps more grave was the rampant misinformation spread amongst the populace. Rather than scramble to man defensive positions or implement desperate countermeasures, segments of Dutch society were attempting to score political points within a political system that itself appeared doomed. Peter Gale's depressing analysis of the war is more detailed and sprinkled with the kind of witty asides which only a native of the country could have added, but we won't follow his coverage entirely lest we become bogged down in the sheer amount of fortresses and towns which fell to the French, and the Bishop of Munster's forces. We saw last time how the French had manoeuvred their army in such a way so as to appear at the soft underbelly of the Republic and thereby threaten its most vulnerable defences, rather than approach from the front and run the gauntlet of the rivers Meuse and Rhine, as had been, somewhat naively it should be added, expected by the Dutch High Command, or what remained of that High Command by this point anyway. Amidst cries for the regions to do something, came the reports of citizens surrendering in droves to whoever they could find, closing the gates of numerous cities to the Dutch armies that remained, and a number of other disruptive measures like pushing over carts of supplies and running off with them for themselves. Yet somehow an undercurrent of rage was building against the regions at the same time as all this, who attempted to rouse the resistance of the Republic citizens for the most part, and were faced with near daily depressions as the citizens of cities along critical defensive lines such as the River Esel, which bisects the province of Over Esel in half, and thus provides a handy defensive line within one of the Republic's most exposed provinces, willingly pressed for an accord with the advancing army. As a result of party struggle that divided the whole country, noted Peter Gale, the commonality turned a blind eye to cowardice amongst the citizens and soldiery and blamed every defeat on the treacherous regents, and the regions of Holland in particular. 
It was said that the army had been deliberately neglected by the regents and the navy strengthened so that DeWitt's brother Cornelius might gain a great victory at sea while William of Orange as captain general would be disgraced in defeat. Another pamphlet claimed that when three of the highest ranking bureaucrats in the state had questioned DeWitt as to what should be done, he merely shrugged his shoulders and said that a good and speedy accommodation with the enemy might be the best way out. And this, as Gail noted with a palpable sense of exasperation, of a man who, with Batavian tenacity, was doing his utmost, and who, if necessary, was prepared to hold out on a remote corner of the country. DeWitt may not have realised the true extent to which the hatred against him was growing in the republic he had for so long served, but he was soon to be given a taste of it. On the evening of the 21st of June, when four well-to-do sons of leading orangists made their way home, they noticed that a light was on in the assembly room of the States of Holland. The States are still at it, one of them remarked, and the Grand Pensionary must be with them. The sooner that scoundrel is out of the way, the better for us all. They waited for the room to darken and for DeWitt to emerge, torch lit on his familiar route home, and the four men, whom Gale labels somewhat disingenuously as heroes, knocked the torch out of DeWitt's hand and set upon him. DeWitt was stabbed repeatedly in the shoulder and side, and once the four had finished, they left the Grand Pensionary for dead. As he lay on the ground bleeding, DeWitt must have despaired at the state of affairs in his homeland, that these men should seek to attack him rather than venture to attack the actual enemy of the Republic, who gained more ground with every passing day. The four were later intercepted by a policeman after DeWitt's body was found on the street. They had tried to lay low, but their bloody clothes and disposal of the weapon nearby gave them away. All turned out to be the sons, as we mentioned earlier, of leading orangists, and the greatest injustice was that, in the case of the one man who was executed for the attack, he became a martyr dedicated to the cause of his nation's salvation. Seriously, I don't have time for martyrs. What was interesting about the event was the nature of the legal proceedings against the four men. In the trial that followed the attack, though the Orangists attempted to make much of the event and line it up as a kind of propaganda coup against the forces of evil in the realm, it was a genuine trial against a man who was assumed to be guilty, and as he waited his execution, one of the perpetrators of the attack, the man sentenced to die in fact, supposedly embraced a spiritual degree of self-sacrifice, inducing the jailers to refrain from cursing and blessing all he came in contact with. The pamphlet on the actual execution itself, entitled The Struggle of Jacob, after Jacob van de Graaff, who would be beheaded for his role in the attack, obscured some convenient details. While Jacob did not admit wrongdoing, admitting only that he was as sinful as other men, he did ask one figure in particular for a pardon, and that figure was Johann de Witt. The Grand Pensionary had survived the attempt on his life, and from his bed in recovery, he gathered information on the unfolding diplomatic situation. By the end of June 1672, it seemed as though Louis XIV was confident of a Dutch surrender. The embassy to Louis was sent only on the 22nd of June, after bitter debates within the States General, but probably only because De Witt, who wholly opposed any line of communication being opened with Louis, was at that stage fresh off an attempt on his life, and understandably he was absent from the National Assembly. Whatever the reasons though, the Dutch were in a bad way, and so when an embassy led by former ambassador to France, Peter de Groot, not Groot, I apologise for trying to make him into a guardian of the galaxy, but there you go. 
De Groot arrived in the French military headquarters on the River Esel on the 23rd of June 1672, and the Dutch hoped to gain something from the experience. Louis XIV, on the other hand, riding high after fulfilling his quest for glory and seeing no signs of the ride ending any time soon, milked the processions for all they were worth. The Dutch were met by Louvois, the Secretary of State for War in France, and his colleague, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, a man named Simone de Pompon, who, in the event, was the former ambassador to the Dutch. Facing these two titans of French politics, whom Peter de Groot almost certainly recognised from his heady days as an ambassador, the supremacy of France was laid on thick. On the 24th of June, the two Frenchmen refused to state any terms at first, and spent a few hours enlightening the Dutchmen on the desperate state of affairs in their republic, asking them to consider in which state their affairs already were, and how much worse they would soon become. Later that day, terms were announced, but they were impossibly high. Louis was to be allowed deal with the conquered territories as he saw fit, which by this point included almost a third of the Dutch land. He could choose to sell back the lands or keep them, but if he chose the former, then France would choose the sale price, and this in addition to a massive war indemnity, which the Dutch couldn't possibly afford. As if this wasn't bad enough, Louis' terms included the caveat that Charles was in no way affected by this deal, meaning that Britain could continue or end the war irrespective of Dutch decisions here. Aghast and insulted, the Dutch delegation returned home on the 25th of June, and de Groot met immediately with the states of Holland, where representatives from the major towns of that province were beginning to despair. Only Amsterdam seemed to speak up against the overwhelming sense of hopelessness, there seemed within each of the delegates no appetite for actual resistance, and many argued that de Groot should be sent back not with, as de Groot had suggested, an offer merely of the generality lands outside the Republic, but with no limitation at all on what he could offer. Had the situation really come to this? Again, Amsterdam resisted this trend. And this time the voice of her pensionary seemed to persuade some of the reps to roll back their initial offers. Everyone was instructed to leave The Hague and go home to debate the matter further in their town halls. Such was the deep nature of Dutch domestic politics. One figure who spoke up was a pensionary of the States of Holland, a resident of Amsterdam and thus present in its town hall. And for the record, he was also a direct underling of the Grand Pensionary of Johan de Witt. I know, pensionaries, grand pensionaries, Dutch domestics, sigh. But stay with me. This pensionary suggested the example of Denmark during the Swedish deluges. If you can remember back to that case, the invasion of Denmark had been halted at Copenhagen, while the rest of the country had fallen to the invader. That city alone had stood firm and resolute in its principles of resistance. Again, this was a way of the pensionary trying to put steel into his peers in the town hall not to lose heart, to remember in addition that they didn't speak for the nation, merely one town within one province, and that any agreement reached here would have to be first presented to Holland and then the States General for deliberation. With the way the war was going, the pensionary argued, other powers like the Emperor and Sweden and Spain couldn't possibly remain silent for long, while Brandenburg's promised troops were surely en route. God has a thousand means of redressing the state in its distress, the pensionary concluded, and this seemed to do the trick. Amsterdam's deputies settled on the following proposal to bring to the states of Holland. Amsterdam would offer Louis a large cash bribe to evacuate his soldiers, and Louis would ensure that 
the French Allies made peace, there would be no distribution of territory to the invader, and France would not have free reign over Dutch land. When a somewhat spirited de Groot received this letter and arrived to present it at the States of Holland, he discovered to his horror what had gone down there. The largest provincial assembly in the Republic had, in its panic, decided to proceed without Amsterdam's input. In the time Amsterdam's deputies had debated the matter away from The Hague in their town hall, the States of Holland's reps had felt the pressure, hailing as many of them did from more exposed towns, and with the absence of Amsterdam's deputies to urge them forward, capitulation again seemed favourable. Thus the official line of Holland had it that Peter de Groot would be free to negotiate with full powers to give whatever he saw fit, when this was brought to the States General, in the absence of Amsterdam's influence, don't forget, the other provinces approved of the line. De Groot would be sent back with his old delegation partners to meet with the indomitable Frenchman and their king. This time apparently he was free to offer the moon if it was believed to halt the French advance. Yet even within the delegation that was sent to meet with the French, divisions presented themselves. One of de Groot's peers hailed from a city in Holland that had actually abstained from voting for the delegation to be sent at all yet his diplomatic expertise was said to be urgently required, so he had gone along. Thus the 18 towns that made up the states of Holland were by no means unified, even if its deputies had voted to send this delegation to Louis, and even though they, somewhat cynically, acted before Amsterdam's deputies, could return to oppose their measure. Of course, the famous event which greets us from history and the major reason why these considerable Dutch divisions pale into the background is found in Louis's incredible act on the 27th of June, when, on receiving the Dutch for the second time, this time round offered terms which were so pointlessly humiliating, in the words of one of Louis's biographers, Anthony Levi, that the Dutch couldn't possibly accept them. What were the terms? Well, where before Louis had requested vague prizes, and seemed mostly focused on gaining money from the settlement, these unrealistic requests were now added to as underlying principles of the peace. Furthermore, Louis was now actually demanding land within the Dutch Republic, not merely the entirety of the Generality lands, but also vast tracts of land in Overiesel and Groningen, a revocation of all Dutch trade deals which could be judged unfavourable to France, the granting of equal rights to Catholics, the promise to negotiate over a partition of the Dutch East India Company, and again, Louis claimed that these demands were apart from those of his allies, who he could not or would not speak for. Stunned into silence by these offers, the Dutch delegation returned home on the 1st of July once more empty-handed. As extensive as their powers had been, nowhere within them lay the powers to divide the Republic's provinces and cleave off lands which these delegates did not hail from and thus, according to Dutch traditions, could not speak for. Peter de Groot appeared before the States of Holland in the evening of the 1st of July, 1672, to give his account on the negotiations. Amsterdam, understandably enough, had already lodged a vicious complaint against the deputies there in previous days for their deliberate exclusion of Amsterdam from the debate. Now though the deputies of the 18 towns listened to de Groot's report with a growing sense of rage, what made it all worse, and which no doubt added to the creeping sense that discussion hadn't in fact worked, was the fact that in the meantime the commonality had discovered de Groot's mission and learned of the insistence of nothing being off the table when it came to negotiations with Louis. It was fortunate for the Holland reps at least that Louis didn't demand anything they felt in a position to give. Rather than present their case as hopeless, 
the deputies could instead present the person of Louis as so arrogant and unreasonable that hopefully this would cover up the initial timidity which the regents of Holland had shown. In time, and history has mostly cooperated with this trend, the people would focus on Louis's arrogance rather than their own bureaucrats' willingness to submit. But before this happened, De Witt was informed, from his sickbed, on the 29th of June, the nature of what was going down, and he recognised the whole incident for what it was, a PR disaster, which could only benefit the Orangists. Certainly De Witt appreciated that the situation was grave, but the image of Holland's regents submitting without apprehension, however true this picture was, captured the imagination of the panicked populace both in the towns of Holland and outside of Holland. Soon the same citizens who had been falling over themselves to surrender to the invader were accusing their representatives of high treason and calling for their heads. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. The regents had always coveted the despicable affections of France, now they sought to speak for the whole country and force a nationwide peace. Quite aside from the fact that this wasn't true, the aforementioned panic and lack of will to resist the invader was again conveniently forgotten. The scapegoat was well and truly cooked. Across the towns of Holland, the cries went out, increasingly difficult to resist, of armed bands of peasants and other rabble seizing town halls and forcing the deputies there to accept the Prince of Orange as stadtholder, on pain of death if they refused. Peter Gale's exasperation at what is going down here was again palpable when he wrote the history of the era, as he questions why the Dutch citizens here could produce so much aggression and energy against their fellow man, but remain quiet and submissive in the face of the French advance. Perhaps these people genuinely believed that the Prince of Orange could save them, and that they thus did not need to be overtly brave. All they really needed to do was disrupt the regent regime and push the prince forward in their place. That the pressure became too much, and they were eventually successful, was confirmed on the 3rd of July 1672. Incredibly enough, in a fact that's often forgotten, William of Orange, in the blur of activity which had occurred since the preceding days, was legally declared Stadtholder of Holland. The perpetual edict was in tatters, and De Witt, laid up in bed, accepted that he had failed in his ambition to save the Republic, as he saw it, from the intrigues of the House of Orange. William III, or arguably his allies in the Holland citizenry, had made political capital from the Republic's distress in international affairs, just as the Grand Pensionary always feared they would, having first done so, after all, during the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Still in Holland, the debate raged on, Though the deputies had heard de Groot's report from his meeting with the French on the 1st of July, domestic matters had once again overruled paying them much attention. Their blood had been boiling since, but now, fresh off an incredible regime change which the week before nobody could have expected, they had more of an opportunity to discuss what to do next. Finally, with the full awareness of the situation put before them again, and with the commonality at least momentarily appeased, de Groot's delegation could be given the attention it required. As each town argued in turn, Amsterdam and Rotterdam collectively asserted that Louis' proposals were impossibly humiliating, and that with their new stadtholder they should rally the citizenry to resist the French. The concessions and grants to Louis would force us to live with the knife permanently at our throats, in the words of one deputy from Delft, while another insisted that it was Far better to die with sword in hand. Finally, it seemed, the Dutch courage seemed to be returning. Having dealt with the divisions of their republic, albeit somewhat crudely and arguably against the will of many, 
the Dutch Republic seemed at last able to present a united front. Into this growing sense of resilience entered Conrad von Buningen, the former ambassador to London and now a visiting deputy to the States of Holland. Rather than send another delegation to the French, van Buningen insisted, the time had come for negotiations to be cut off. The time had come, as a growing number of deputies in Holland had come to accept, to accept that peace at any price was not worth paying for. The sluices were to be opened, and the seawater allowed to consume all flat lands that existed for the enemy to roam on. Cram the peasants, the citizens and the soldiers into the fortresses that dominated the submerged lands, and place their captain-general at the head of this new line of defence. Agreements rang out, and with that horses were seen to pass the messages along to the other provinces. Whatever the strategic situation, however grave the divisions of the state, and however supreme the position of the French and Allied armies, all would know one truth. The rampyard was over. Now the Dutch would fight to the bitter end. Alrighty, well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, guys. Before we vamoose, though, yes, I just did say vamoose. Who even says vamoose anymore? Apparently I do. Well, anyway, it's time to read out the patrons who have joined us since we last read out patrons, which was nearly a week ago now. But yeah, so, patrons from the 23rd of February to the 3rd of March 2017. If your name is not on here, I apologize, but it'll be on next time, I swears. Okay, so first we have Mike, who is an ambassador. Then we have Mike again, who is an embassy intern. Then we have William T., who is a diplomat. Lawrence W., who is a foreign secretary. David E., an embassy intern. Rosa, a diplomat. Martin C., an embassy intern. Rasmus A., a student of diplomacy. Colin W., an ambassador. Robert N., a diplomat. Matthew N., an embassy intern. Patrick W., Embassy Intern, Catherine S., a diplomat, Scott, a student of diplomacy, Madeline M., a diplomat, James, an Embassy Intern, Harold H. III., an Envoy Extraordinaire, Slavic B., sorry, a diplomat, Vincent Orr, an Embassy Intern, Robbie M., a diplomat, Kyle W., a diplomat, Joshua K., a diplomat, Tyler W., an attaché, Mike J., a diplomat. So yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Have a great day, and I'll be seeing you all very soon. Thanks. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 